So here we are, back to the book, Revelation 13 this morning. I heard a Ravi Zacharias, who's a great evangelist and Christian apologist, talk about a tradition that was a part of his upbringing. He's from the nation of India. And he says there in the Far East that they have a superstition, a tradition, if you will, about how to tell what a baby is going to grow up to be. The tradition goes like this. He said that uh, they will have a table out and they will lay on a table three objects, an empty wine bottle, a Bible, and a stack of money. And they say that depending on which object the baby gravitates toward, it will determine their future. If he picks up the bottle of wine, then the baby will grow up to be a man or woman of dissipation. They will live for the world and for worldly things. If they pick up a stack of money on the table, then they will most likely, according to this tradition, be a business person or an entrepreneur. And if they go for the Bible, of course, they will pursue a career in the ministry, spiritual things and uh, the things of God. Well, the story is told that a new father uh, was eager to learn about the future of his young son. And so when the child became a toddler, uh, they initiated this tradition. There they had the table, and they had the objects laid before, uh, the Bible, the empty wine bottle, and, of course, that stack of money. And so they ushered the child into the room there, and as the little boy, about two or three, toddled up to the table, he studied the contents there on that table. And the grandfather was there with the dad, and they were both watching, waiting to see what the child would do. And so they watched the baby. He gravitated toward the Bible and he picked it up. And they thought, oh, this is great. He's going to be a spiritual man. And as the baby was about to walk away, he turned and went back to the table. And he picked up the stack of money and put the money in the Bible and folded it up. And then with the other hand, grabbed the wine bottle. And the old man, the grandpa, shook his head and he said, son, this is bad. He said, it means that the little boy is going to grow up to be a politician. <laughs> I heard about three friends who were having lunch, a surgeon and an engineer and a politician. And they were arguing over their dinner about uh, which profession was the oldest. And the surgeon said, well, fellas, it's mine. Remember, the Bible says that uh, after God made Adam, that he put him to sleep. And he cut open his side. He removed a rib and brought forth his wife Eve. He said, that's the first surgery. So God is obviously a surgeon. And the engineer uh, replied to that. He said, that's a good point, but I think my profession goes back further. You'll remember that before God made Adam and Eve, of course, He made the universe. He made the earth and the skies and the stars and the seas. So God was obviously an engineer. He had to plan all of that out. In fact, the engineer said, remember, the Bible tells us that God brought order out of chaos. And that's when the politician spoke up. And he said, guys, you've got it all wrong. He said, my job goes back even further. Who do you think made all the chaos? <laughs> now today, we are going to be talking about a politician. A political man. A powerful man. The Bible calls him many different things. We know him best as the Antichrist. For centuries, the identity of this shadowy figure has entranced Bible scholars and people who have studied the Word. 
the infamous number of the Antichrist is known as 666, and it has actually been applied to hundreds of different candidates down through the ages. It seems that anybody with a calculator and with a little bit of creativity has tried to place that moniker of the Antichrist on a political figure of their era. For instance, consider some of these anecdotes from history. There was Adolf Hitler. And during the days of World War II, there was a popular pamphlet that was going around. It was entitled The Beast and the False Prophet and Hitler. And the pamphlet explained that Hitler was no doubt the Antichrist. And the way that they spelled this out was by linking or the letters in Hitler's name to numbers. And here's the way that they had did this. According to the pamphlet, if you let the letters in the alphabet, for instance, A be 101 and B be 102 and C be 103 and so on, if you applied that numerical value to each of the letters in Hitler's name and you add them up, what do you get? 666. Well, Hitler wasn't the only one. Do you know that there were some who thought that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist? Well, you say, well, what signs may have pointed to him? At the Democratic National Convention in 1956, do you know that he received 666 votes? <laughs> and many conspiracy theorists pointed to that. And then, of course, they had their th theory confirmed even more when in 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated and many thought that as he lay in state there in the Capitol Rotunda that he might come out of that casket and revive and resurrect as the Bible says the Antichrist will do. Of course, we know that that didn't happen. But that didn't stop the conspiracy theorists from pinning the tail on the Antichrist. There was Ronald Reagan. Now, you take his full name, Ronald Wilson Reagan, and that was comprised three words, each of six letters, and many doomsdayers equated Ronald Wilson Reagan with that number 666. Of course, you remember, he survived an assassination attempt, and he recovered and proved uh, to go on to a political career. And then when he and Nancy left the White House, they moved to the Bel Air section of Los Angeles, and the address of their street, get this, was 666 St. Cloud Road of which they immediately tried to have it changed to 668. And so many thought Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist, but that didn't stop. Because in 2008, President Barack Obama stepped into the White House, and here is what was said of him. Henry Kissinger wrote in the New York Times just a few days after his election, the extraordinary impact of the president-elect on the imagination of humanity is an important element in shaping the New World Order. And then other newspapers around the world. There was an Arabic newspaper that ran this headline after Obama was elected. Today, America elects, quote-unquote, President of the World. And ironically, there was another sign that people pointed to that he was the Antichrist. The day after the election in 2008, November the 5th, the Pick 3 lottery in the president's home state of Illinois was, you got it, 666. One Bible commentator has looked at all these examples down through the ages and observed at least three strategies that people 
have used to identify the Antichrist. Here they are. Number one, if a person's name doesn't equal 666, then throw in a title. <laughs> Number two, if you can't get the name to add up in English or uh, whatever language, try Greek, Hebrew, or Latin. And then number three, they said, don't be too particular about how the name is spelled. With enough ingenuity, almost anybody can make somebody out to be the Antichrist. And that proves to this morning that if somebody, if you're talking to or you hear a preacher say, I know who the Antichrist is, that ought to send your baloney meter going off because the Bible doesn't even reveal the identity of this shadowy figure. And friend, if you do know who the Antichrist is, it could be bad news. Uh, you could be in bad shape because that means you have been left behind. Well, friends, this morning I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. He's my hope. He's my salvation. I hope He is for you as well. Now, when we come to Revelation 13, what we have here is what I call the biography of the beast. And this passage spells out for us what the career of this coming world leader will be like. Now, there's at least three main attributes that I want to focus on here this morning. Number one, I want you to notice with me the satanic authority of the beast. And we read about this in verses 1 and 2. Notice what the word says. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and the blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And watch this. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now the Bible refers to the Antichrist with 25 different aliases. In fact, probably more if we were to list them all. In Daniel chapter 7, he's called the little horn. In Daniel chapter 9, he is called the prince who is to come in verse 26. In Daniel 8, he's called the fierce king and a master of intrigue. Zechariah the prophet calls him a worthless shepherd. Paul refers to him in 2 Thessalonians 2 as the son of perdition, the lawless one, and the man of sin. John refers to him in his first epistle, 1 John, as the Antichrist. And here in Revelation 13, we read another title. He's called the Beast. Now in John's vision, we see this beast rising from the sea. Now in the book of Revelation, when you read of the sea, it's not necessarily referring to the Atlantic or the Pacific. It's not a body of water per se. Remember, this is symbolic. This is apocalyptic. So we have to interpret the meaning of these. But when you see the sea, it is a reference to the restless sea of humanity. And so what we see here is the beast will rise to power out of humanity in an inconspicuous way. He will ascend the political ladder one rung at a time. And there's a tremendous amount of speculation today about where the Antichrist will hail from. Some say he will be a Jew. Others say he will be a Muslim. But I think Daniel 9.26 probably gives us the best clue about where this man will come from. In that vision in Daniel 9, Daniel sees the Antichrist coming from the nation which is responsible for destroying the temple after Jesus is crucified. And of course, we know who came and destroyed the temple. That was the Romans in 70 A.D. And so, 
we have every likelihood to believe that when the Antichrist comes, he will come out of the revived Roman Empire or some form of Rome 2.0, and that means Europe. Now, the beast in this passage, Revelation 13, is described with all kinds of grotesque symbolism. We saw it there, ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems. And then he's pictured with animalistic features like a leopard and like a bear and like a lion. Now, if you are an astute student of Bible prophecy, you will notice that these symbols have appeared before in the Holy Scriptures. In fact, if you go back to chapter 12 and verse 3, you see the same symbolism there. Ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems. It's a direct parallel to the description that John gives us in the previous chapter of the dragon. And we know who the dragon is. Who is it, class? It's Satan. It's Satan. So this is an intended link to put together the Antichrist and Satan. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You see, the Antichrist will be the devil's diplomat. He'll be Satan's superman. He'll be Lucifer's leader. And then, as we continue reading here, the seven heads. What does that come from? Well, I don't want to get too bogged down in all of the symbolism, but I can tell you that that is interpreted for us later on in the book of Revelation, in chapter 17 and verse 9. And we see that those seven uh, heads there represent the seven hills upon which the city of Rome was built. And this again suggests that the Antichrist is going to rule over a revived form of the Roman Empire. The ten crowns speak of power, and many think that they speak of the ten-nation confederacy. He will amass ten nations to come together, and he will rule over them in this final new world order. And then finally, those animalistic features, the leopard and the bear and the lion. If you go back into the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, there our prophet is given a vision of world empires that are to come after him. And we see that Babylon is pictured there in a, as a lion. And then we see that a bear is to come after that. That's a, the Medo-Persian empire. And then after that, of course, the leopard, which is a picture of Alexander the Great and Greece. And so these same images appear here in the book of Revelation because what it is telling us is that the same ambition that Nebuchadnezzar and Caesar and Alexander and Cyrus that they had to build a world empire will once again be in the thought process of this beast, this Antichrist. Now I believe that every generation has a man who Satan has handpicked who is waiting in the wings to step forward to assume this role of Antichrist. You see, Satan is smart, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't know the day or the hour that Christ will return. But he does have people in places of position and places of authority groomed and ready to step into this place. In fact, I'm not the only one who believes this. Listen to what Gary Frazier, a prophecy scholar, in one of his books, The Signs of the Coming of Christ, here's what he wrote. He said, quote, somewhere at this moment there may be a young man growing up to maturity. He is in all likelihood a brooding, thoughtful young man. Inside his heart, however, there is a hellish rage. It boils like a cauldron. He hates God. He despises Jesus Christ. He detests the church. In his mind, there is taking shape the form of a dream or conquest. He will dangerously present himself as a friend of Christ in the church, yet he will, once empowered, pour out hell itself on this world. Can the world produce such a prodigy? Hitler was once a little boy, 
Stalin was a lad. Nero was a child. Be assured, the devil has handpicked his main man. And so, John tells us, number one, about the satanic authority of this beast. And then he moves on in verses 3 and 4 to talk to us about the seductive appeal of the beast. What will this Antichrist do once he has the reins of power? Well, look at what verse 3 tells us. On one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now, these verses describe probably the most sensational moment that will take place during the career of the Antichrist. At some point during the tribulation, the Bible tells us that he will receive a mortal wound. And what that means is that he will most likely be killed, or an assassination attempt at least will be made on his life. And then, to the astonishment of the world, he will be raised back to life in some kind of counterfeit miracle, a counterfeit resurrection of who? Jesus. Remember, Satan is a great imitator. He's not an originator. He copycats and apes and parrots what God has already done. I don't believe that Satan has the ability to create life. But what he can do is create deception so slick and so believable that people will think it was a real resurrection. And by the way, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're already told there that when the Antichrist comes to power, that a strong delusion will go out across mankind. So you say, how could anybody believe this? How could anybody bow to a man and worship him as a god? Well, the Bible says that strong delusion is, is going to come upon the whole world. And friend, the danger of not believing in God is that you won't believe in nothing. It's that you will believe in anything. And so the effect of this great miracle will cause the whole world to marvel over the beast. Now, David Jeremiah has written copiously about the end times. He has a great paragraph in one of his books about what that scene might be like on the day during the tribulation when the Antichrist is supposedly killed and comes back to life again. Now, in his book that he wrote about this, he gives the Antichrist a name. He calls him Judas Christopher. And I want to read for you just an excerpt. And imagine this in your mind. He said this, As his body lies in state in the capital rotunda of the United States of Europe, the television networks will preempt every program to cover this event. Surrounding the coffin will be governors of the European states, the president, and all members of Congress from the United States of America and the leading officials of every country are there. Most of them will stand frozen with grief. Some will be openly weeping. Suddenly, the body of Judas Christopher stirs. He sits up. Slowly, he rises from his casket and grabs the nearest microphone. A gasp of disbelief is collectively heard across the room. Then, the beast speaks, and his voice resonates throughout the world. Do not fear, my friends. I am alive. Look at me. Three days ago, I had a bullet in my head. But as you can see now today, I am completely whole. My greatest wish is now to continue the reunification of the nations and religions and bring together all people of colors of faith to a peaceful coexistence. 
So we see the seductive appeal of the beast and the satanic authority of the beast. And then thirdly, I want to talk to you about the sinister attributes of the beast. Now in verses 5-10, through 10, the remainder of this chapter, John takes time to give us three character attributes that describe the personality of this Antichrist. I want you to see in verses 5 and 6 that he'll be a charismatic leader. It says there, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, or three and a half years, or 1260 days, or time, times, and half a times. That's just a time marker that the Bible uses to describe the three and a half years of the last part of the tribulation. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, and that is those who dwell in heaven. So we see that this beast will be a charismatic leader. He will be able to sway the masses with great words of power and promise. He'll have the handsomeness of a JFK, the eloquence of an Abraham Lincoln, the intellect of a Winston Churchill, the inspiring quality of a Martin Luther King Jr., but... Inside, he will have the heart callous like Stalin and wicked and blackened like that of Hitler. And the beast will use his platform as a means to spread propaganda and to blaspheme, the Bible says, Christ and the church and the gospel. Now, in case you think this is something that's just so far off in left field, I want to give you a couple of quotes. There are actually people today who are looking for a leader like this. In fact, if a leader came along with such charisma and such oratorical ability and said, I can solve the world's problems, I can, I can deal with the environment, I can feed hungry mouths, uh, we can get this situation over here in the Middle East handled, uh, I know how to uh, deal with the energy crisis going on. If somebody with all of the answers and with the right persuasion and with the power of Satan behind them stepped forward, do you, don't you know that people would fall over themselves to get in line to follow this leader? They're calling for it today. Listen to these quotes. Paul Henry Spock, he was actually the first president of the UN. He made this stunning statement decades ago. Listen to what this world leader said. He said, we do not need another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of people and to lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Listen to this part. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. Arnold Toynbee, a great British historian, here's what he said on a radio broadcast not long ago. He said, By forcing on mankind more and more lethal weapons, and at the same time making the world more and more independent economically, technolo technology has brought mankind to such a degree of distress that we are ripe for deifying of any new Caesar who might succeed in giving the world unity and peace. And isn't that the drumbeat of our culture today? Tolerance, unity, peace. Why can't we just bring everybody together, all the races, all the sexual orientations, all the political backgrounds, and why can't we just get everybody together in some kind of socialistic utopia and live together? Friends, I'm telling you, that's the spirit of the Antichrist, and it's, if it smells like smoke, guess where it's from? But the world is being primed for that right now. And you say, preacher, this is just way too crazy for me. Well, friend, listen, the Bible says 
that the God of this age has blinded people's eyes. They don't know the truth. They don't have the ability to see the truth. And when this stuff comes along, people are going to grab onto it because their hope is in government, not in God. They're looking for some kind of program or politician or man to solve their problems. He'll be a charismatic leader. He will also be a cruel leader. Look what it says in verse 7. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. You see, the Antichrist, when he gains power, he will make the despots of the world look like a stroll through Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. During the tribulation period, we're told that he will be allowed to make war on the saints. That is, those who are alive during the tribulation and make a profession of Christ, he'll execute them. And then if you go back to the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8, it tells us that not only is he going to go after the church, but he's going to go after the Jews. In fact, we know from the first Holocaust, when Hitler murdered the Jews, six million Jews, one out of every three Jews on the planet were executed. But the Bible tells us in Zechariah 13.8 that the second Holocaust that's coming under the sway of the Antichrist, two out of three of every Jew will die during that time period. He'll be a cruel leader. He will promise peace. The Bible says in Revelation 6, he'll come like a rider with a bow but no arrow. He'll be great. People will laud him, say, why didn't we notice him sooner? And then when he gets in power, he'll turn and his true intentions will be seen. Listen to what John Phillips, a Bible scholar, wrote. He said, to war, the beast will go with his firing squads, gas chambers, and death camps. The experience learned from the centuries of torture and terror will be at his disposal. And the annals of hell will be combed for ideas to expedite the bloody work. This is Satan's last fling against God's people. The great red dragon will drink his fill of blood, but only, the Bible says, for 42 months. Even though it is chaos on earth, God is still sovereign and He will not let the madness go on one second longer than He has approved. Aren't you glad today that God is still on the throne? Aren't you glad today that if you're saved, if you've been washed in the blood, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you and I won't see this because Jesus Christ, I believe, is going to call the church out of this world. Friend, and I'm okay if He were to come today. How about you? Are you ready to go? Are your affairs in order? Are you ready to see the King of Kings? Are you ready to worship with the angels? Are you ready to get that resurrection body? Friend, I think about every problem that you and I have got can be solved when Jesus Christ stands on the balcony of heaven and Gabriel warms up and blows that horn and friend, we go up, up and away to be with Him. Ready to leave this earth because friend, it's going to be dark. It's going to be evil. It's going to be wicked. He'll be a cruel leader and a charismatic leader. But then let's finish up and notice that he will also be a cultic leader. Watch what it says in verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
Do you know the one thing that Satan has always desired? It's worship. He's always wanted the position of God. Even in the very beginning, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, he wanted to be the God of God. And the Bible says here in Revelation 13 that the whole world is going to rally around this Antichrist and they will worship him. In fact, worship is what Satan wanted when he tempted Jesus. Remember that? That scene in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And in Matthew 4, that last temptation, it says that Jesus went up to a high mountain and Satan appeared before them and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And verse 9 he said, And all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. That's what Satan has always wanted. And the beast will be the puppet of the dragon, Satan. And by bowing down to the beast, people will actually be bowing down to Satan. You see, Satan knows that nobody's going to sign up for devil worship. He's wise enough to know that no rational human being is going to say, well, all right, let's worship the devil. But if he uses a man with intellect, with attractiveness, with charisma, and with political power behind him, oh, people will do that. And so Satan is the real power behind the man of sin. Now we are told that this turning point will happen during the midpoint of the tribulation. When will the Antichrist go from being just a governor to being a god? Well, Paul breaks this down in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says that during the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to go into the newly built temple that will be there in Jerusalem. And look at what it says here. And the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. That's when he will declare to the world who he really is and he will make people worship him. Make people accept the mark of the beast. And if they don't, they'll die by the sword or die by starvation. And so we see here, as we end this passage, notice what it says in verse 8. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So you see that at the end of time, just as it is today, there's a spiritual line drawn through humanity. And that spiritual line is those who are with Christ or those who are with Satan, the enemy. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and those who have rejected Him. And just as it is today, that dividing line will be there during that tribulation period. Friend, when it comes down to it, you're either saved or lost. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Saved people and lost people. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either a wheat or a tear. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You're either going to split hell wide open or you're going to hear the words when you enter into heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. There's only two kinds of people in this world. You say, well, Derek, what's the point of all this? I mean, you already told us that the church isn't going to be here when this happens. Listen, God put it in a book, and if God thinks we should know it, then we ought to know it. But God wants us to know that He's going to give mankind exactly what He has always wanted. Man has always wanted complete independence from God, to run this show by himself, to not have to bow his knee to anybody, to have world domination. And guess what? Humanity's going to get the very thing that they've wanted. But when they get it, they won't be happy with it. And yet, with all of His power, 
Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, they will not be able to defeat my God. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. My hope is not in government. My hope is in God. Friend, I've said it before. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a monarchist. And I serve a coming king. And his name is Jesus Christ. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And the Bible says that the government shall rest on His shoulders, and of the increase of His government and of His peace, there shall be no end. Friend, a day is coming when every politician, every king, every ambassador, every emperor, every Caesar will have to bow their knee, and they will be compelled to say, You were right. You are Lord of lords. You are King of kings. Yes, Jesus, even we will give you honor and glory. Friend, the day is coming. You can bow your knee today or you can be made to do it later on. This world is not moving toward utopia. The government can't solve our problems. There isn't a leader who can deal with the real issue and that's the wretchedness of man's heart. But there was one man who 2,000 years ago hung on a Roman cross in between heaven and earth and he shed his blood for you and me and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he said, it is finished. Friend, do you know that Savior today? If you're not washed in the blood, if He's not your Lord, then the day is coming, friend, when you could be left behind. And this will be your future. And this will be your God. And you'll have to make the choice, will I receive the mark of the beast or will I die of starvation? You don't have to get to that point. You can come to Jesus today. Isn't that much better? Isn't there much more hope in that? And no matter whether Christ comes or whether He tarries and you expire and go by way of the grave, hey, you're a winner either way. Listen to the promise that's given as I close today. Remember we talked about the Lamb's Book of Life? Is your name written there? Verse 8 talks about. Listen what Jesus told the church in Sardis earlier on in the book. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Is your name written down? Many of you have probably heard of an old song, but you haven't heard of the story behind it. There's a man named James Milton Black. There he is. In 1881, he worked in Williamsport, Pennsylvania as a music teacher. He was also a Sunday school teacher in a Methodist church, and he loved young people, and he, he tried to win them for Christ. One day as he was walking down the street, he came down an alley, and on the corner he saw a raggedy 14-year-old girl sitting there. She was the daughter of an alcoholic. She had been beat. She'd been cast aside. He invited her to come to Sunday school, bought her some clothes, did his best to be a, an influence in her life. And soon, after she started coming to his Sunday school class, she professed Jesus as her Savior. But one day, as he stood before his class, he called the roll. And that little girl that he looked forward to seeing wasn't there. She didn't respond. Her bright smile and her 
her cheerful personality were absent. And then one week turned into two weeks, and two weeks turned into a month, and then pretty soon a month turned into a quarter, and he became concerned. And so he knew where the little girl lived, and James Black went to her house and knocked on the door, and he found the little girl dangerously ill with pneumonia. And, of course, these were in the days before good antibiotics, and death was highly likely. So James Milton Black returned back to his home. He was shaken. He was saddened at the plight of this little girl. He sat by his piano and he prayed, God, give me a word. Lord, help me to process this grief. He thought about that little girl's name there on the roll of his classroom. And then he thought about the comfort that would come by knowing that very soon Jesus was going to call her name and she would answer. So he was inspired to pin these words down into a tune that you and I know. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore and the roll is called up yonder I'll be there. A few days later Black received the news that that little girl did pass away. He stood there at that funeral with just a few people there. He told the story of how he met her, how she came to know Jesus Christ. And then for the very first time at that little girl's funeral, he sang the words of that song that he penned just a few days earlier when the roll is called up yonder. Friend, I want to ask you a question today. Is your name in the roll book? Is it recorded in the Lamb's book of life that John talked about there in that passage? Will you be there around the throne? with God and His people. I hope you've made that decision. If you haven't, we're standing today and our musicians are coming and we're going to have an invitation right now. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally in a real and intimate way, in a saving way, not just in an intellectual way, way but I'm talking about is He your Lord? Is He your life? Is He your hope? Is He your Savior?